is it a zero or are you putting in a minimum grade? Thunder strikes down. Like well, that, Marcus, the listening <laughs> audience divides like a parted sea. Yeah, this for is, sure. This is the one. To the broken copier a conversation about teaching marcus it's been a minute how are you my friend it's been more than a minute and, and february is almost over like that's I I guess, my biggest reflection right now i know we i thought i thought that you and i were going to get a chance to connect a little bit more but the holidays get a little wild people get sick you yeah. know life happens and then of course we're on the we you know the the time zone change uh, remains to be a scheduling issue but i'm glad we made it work yeah, as with everything, context matters. But we're here. Yeah, and we're making. Yeah, it. we are. How, how, we're how's here. Teaching? How are you? Teaching is good. We, um, yeah, it's been it's been a long year. I think uh, Lang stuff has been going well. I think my co teacher Josh and I have been hitting some good good strides with our writing process, and I've gotten the kids more invested in in deeper reading than I've seen before, or at least that feels that way. Um, and the AP research kids are, are going well. They're, they have surveys and research tools ready to launch. And so they essentially have like a month to collect data before they start doing their write-ups and do their presentations. So it's, it's, we're humming along. How about you? Loving, like, this is my favorite part of the year in certain ways. I've always loved quarter three. I've got like in one half of my world, like Shakespeare, King Lear, nerding out with all of that. And like the synthesis essays students are diving into. On the other side, we've got our graphic novel unit with, they call us enemy. And by the way, like teaching graphic novels and pushing kids thinking about like structure and visual, like you see kids come in there with almost like a swagger of like, oh, this is the easy unit. Yeah. And then they start like, oh no, I have to think about this and do this. And it's just such a, every year now I like know the pattern. So yeah, yeah it, it's a good space. I did have the other day though, uh, one someone, one of like a uh, district admin was like observing the room coming in, like just doing kind of like a school walk around, nothing negative. And they go with like, I could see them like really not talking to the kids. There's like looking at all the walls and then they come over to me at the end of the class, like class is going great. But like, I have to ask you, where's like, your learning what's objective? With the, no, what's with uh, the octopus thing? <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is there, like, and I'm just like, uh, not gonna lie like it's kind of got a little out of hand at this point because yeah. i do my stuff from like the analogy of the octopus and like, i try to lean into it a little bit but now kids have like been bringing their stuff like in the art class they do like this art project and like i've got like a a cup holder with an octopus sculpture and a painting and like these stuffed animals and i'm like it's like almost like this at yeah. some point it's gonna get really out of hand. So I'm just kind of contemplating like where's the line of too many octopuses in one classroom space, which is a good problem in my mind. But uh, th that's where I'm at right now. Like, I that's think. Well, I I love that a lot. So I have also become known as the space cat guy at my school, and so I have I have had on occasion other teachers drop off like, oh, I saw this sticker of a space cat. And I, ha I thought of you, I had to get it. 
But no, I don't have any kids. I have to say I'm a little jealous. I don't have any kids like doing Space Cat artwork. And so I think that's an aspirational goal for me. I had one group of former students like they did like they came by and like Mr. Luther, we have this like before winter break, here's this gift. I'm like, oh, this is so kind. And I open it up, it's like a little brown baggie, and it's a stuffed animal squid. And they intentionally know that this bothers me that when people uh-huh. re- like it was like the biggest like half gift, half like absolute dagger to my heart. Uh, yep. intentionally. And like they were smiling like deviously as they left, as they like saw me open it. So yeah, I that, love it. this is like my peak and my valley of this year. I guess technically that was 2023. So yeah. Yeah, what a way to go out, right? I hear you, man. I, I mean, look, a squid is not an octopus, and we should no, be able I, to get, we should get that right. Yeah, if nothing else today. But we got a lot to talk about today. You ready to roll? Yes, we do. Grading. Okay. So on today's show, we're going to talk about grading, which we've done before, but we're going to use a little bit more pragmatism than usual in that we're going to pretend that Jim was hired into a new teaching position. And unlike many of our situations, he has 100% control of what he's going to set up with his grade book, his grading policies. It's entirely Jim's decision. And I'm just going to ask him if this was the situation, what choice he would make. Because I think in some degree, teachers everywhere make some of these choices on their own. And not that him and I are these like all seeing, all knowing people, but I feel like talking through our own thought processes when we make these decisions uh, is the goal of the episode. So does that sound like a plan? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So uh, let's just dive right in. So you just got hired. You've got your walls decorated with your space cats whenever, uh, and you're setting up your grade book. And I guess like my first question is like, what scale do you use? If it's your call, do you use the traditional 90, 80, 70, 60? Do you get weird with it? Like, what do you do? Um, I would say I would, I would default to a pretty traditional grading scale. Um, so like uh, the thing that I know, the thing that a lot of people are familiar with is like 97 or 96 and up is an A plus, uh, 96 to 93 is an A, 90 to 92, A minus, so on and so forth. So yeah, generally like 90 and up is A range, 80 and up is B range, 70, C, etc. And I think the main reason that I would, use that and default to that is not not necessarily because I like it or I think it's like there's anything special about that particular thing but it is familiar and very normalized in terms of the college process and creating and calculating GPAs and so one of the things that I I mean I, I guess I should preface like all of my answers with this where I and I think most teachers are coming from or many teachers are coming from is a lens towards college, like college readiness. And I know that that's a really loaded term, but when I'm thinking about grades, I'm thinking about what's a, what's a fair way to represent the, the, the hard work and the skills and the readiness of students, especially as it pertains to AP Lang. So that's, not the only way to think about grades. And I think that's where some of these disagreements come from. But um, I mean, yeah, the short answer to your question would be 
I would lean in towards a more traditional 90, 80, 70 ABC type of situation. Okay. And in a weird way, I'm going to sort of agree with you for different reasons. Cause I tend, I'm, and we've talked about this in prior episodes. I'm not a fan of the let college dictate what is right for us yeah. in high school. I know that's not necessarily what you're saying. I'm not trying to straw man it, but I think for me, the familiarity that's important is to consider the families and students and their norms. And I think as much as I respect the philosophy behind people kind of getting weird with it, with their grade mm-hmm. books. And like, I think that's well-intended. I hear lots of good things. A lot of times that happens. And then families are like, I don't really get what these grades are trying to say. Cause at the end of the day, those grades need to tell a story about what the student is learning. And I think it, the further you go from the norm, the more incumbent it is on you as a teacher to make sure that that is communicated to all your stakeholders, your students and your families. And that's where I think there is some built in benefit to the old system. Uh, I on for me right now. And again, based on what is the norm at my school, I've gotten used to like 87, five, 75, 62.5, 50. Mm -hmm. So the same scale, just a little bit wider, a little bit goes a little bit deeper. So a 50 is passing technically. And the reason I like it, it's just selfishly is we use uh, a lot of standards-based grading types things with proficiency scales through four and they map really well. It's like a 3.5 yeah. is a 87.5. So like yeah. if you just do the math on that scale, it, it makes a clean fit, but that gets really into the weeds. I think at the end of the day, why I really support your answer for a lot of teachers who are considering this is that if you're going to do something different, you better not just have a reason behind it, which I think people do. But you better be able to communicate that in a meaningful way to everyone who mm-hmm. has implications there. So I, I think your gut instinct there, I do support. And I just like another a quick note on this. Like I'm gonna definitely give like concrete answers. This is my gut instinct on on all these questions. But before that, I mean, I think this is where the clarity and the conviction of a of a really strong school school-wide vision is for what you're trying to do because grades obviously are an important part but like I don't think anybody thinks grades are the most important part of any kids chat like high school or any type of school experience and or at least I certainly don't think that I I I know a lot of people probably would say that is true yeah you're giving me the look there but yeah I think a lot of teachers that I know will tell you your grade should not determine or like the number should not necessarily determine what you're getting out of that class, which is like, yeah, I guess I'm getting off onto a little bit of tangent here, but the main point that I'm making is I really believe that you can do any policy, like you can do a no grades type of system. You can have a weird grading scale. Like to me, a lot of these questions are really connected to the school vision and the school leadership what are the values that are driving these? And that is all very school and context dependent. So I guess that's just kind of a blanket caveat to any of these answers here. Cause they, they I know that this is going to drop a lot of uh, feelings for some people. <laughs> that's good. Cause they, at the end of the day, we do make these choices. I think sometimes we pretend that we don't. And I think that's the goal of today. And I, I would promise you, we will circle back to that blanket caveat at the end. Like I've got a plan for that because I think it matters and you and I are aligned on a lot of that. Uh, let's go back to like the, okay, you're in, you've set up your grades. You've got your 90, 80, 70 system. 
now a lot of us have choices, or at least I, I've experienced this in multiple schools. How do you organize it versus total points or weighting? Like, are you a fan of like having categories that are weighted a certain way? Or yes. are you a fan of just saying every assignment's its own amount of points and you determine it as you go? I'm a fan of weight. I mean, I'm a fan of balancing like I'm a fan of like simplicity and routine. And so I wouldn't want to have like all kinds of different categories. Uh, but I do think I do think that weighting assignments in different categories is helpful because it can communicate like the way that I do it. This is a school wide thing, which I happen to think is strong. Uh, we split our weighting between practice assignments and performance assignments because we are, tr we, you know, we're trying to shift to a standards based type of um, model. And I, that's something that I am certainly open to. Like, I, I wouldn't say I have particularly strong feelings about it, but we have practice assignments is worth 30% of your overall quarter grade. And we have performance assignments that are worth 70% of your overall quarter grade. And so the performance assignments are less frequent, uh, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks. And those are things like quizzes, tests, larger papers, so on and so forth. And I think that that's really helpful because I don't want students to be like constantly stressed out that this is like a big thing that I have to do for my grade. There needs to be, there needs to be like low stakes, moments for them to like fail or make a mistake or maybe even like not turn something in uh that like doesn't completely jeopardize their their grade and so for me that weighting helps to communicate a more accurate representation of what does the student actually know where what key assignments have they really demonstrated mastery on could not agree more uh, from my perspective. And I think to flip it to the teacher's perspective, especially I'm thinking back to my early years, uh, when you're doing total points, you're still kind of waiting. You're just like doing it on the go and you're either doing it poorly because you're making mistakes. I mean, I'm an English teacher, right? Like mm -hmm. as we're going, or you're just doing a lot of work you don't need to do. Uh, because if you have these categories set up like you named and it doesn't matter what they are, and I agree with you, there shouldn't be too many then whatever points you determine in there comes out with a clean number where you can stay at the front end of the course, mm -hmm. half of your grade or 75% of your grade is going to come from these assessments. If you're doing total points, that's on you to then do all the math as you go to make that true. Mm -hmm. And that I remember early in my career trying to do that and just got out of hand. And I think a lot of people who only do total points and have done that their whole career, the moment they shift over and do weighted one time, ball game they never go back mm -hmm. everyone i've ever talked to and i was that person who didn't want to shift over but once i shifted over it was a clean path the rest of the way uh because i just think it takes something off your plate in terms of what you're accountable to so you can focus on things that matter so and i'm with you and it's gonna be an echoed thing throughout if you norm as a school even better what is the what's the argument against waiting i mean i guess i've sort of always had been in a system where there's been some type of category waiting and I don't really know what the argument is against it. I can't think of one other than I think people like doing things the way they have done it. 
And mm. I think that total points feels like you have the control to make any individual assignment be worth as much as you individually think it should be. Mm. I am past the point with humility to know that that is a horrible justification for pretty much anything. But I think talking to people, and to be fair, they're people who feel very confident in their practices and their systems, and this is part of their systems, and they just are reluctant to change, is mm -hmm. my perceived experience talking to many people and raising my hand, having been one of them who has seen the light, so to speak, of weighted grades. Yeah, I'm certainly in favor of it. <laughs> Okay, well, that's an easy one then. Let's keep it. So, okay, so you've got your grade book. You set it up. You got your your scale. You've got your weighting. How many assignments in like an ideal grade book over, let's say, a semester? So half mm -hmm. a school year. How many, What's the number of assignments or grades you're entering in that grade book? Um, I would say on average, I would go for one, per, like, one performance assignment per week. Um, so that's 18 right there about. Um, so but I would say between 15 and 18 large-ish quiz type assessments or test type assessments. And then an average of two or three practice grades a week. So that's uh, 18 times eighteen times two is what, 30, 36? Yeah, so you're in like the 50 range. About, yeah. I, I generally have every nine weeks, I have between 25 and about 25 grades in a, in a, in a quarter, which is half a semester. Okay. I'm a little lower than that. I'm probably in like the 30 range a semester. And some of those, yeah. to be honest, are like, I've split the standard of the grade because we use that four point scale for everything. So if I have like a, a big essay, it might be multiple four point scales for different parts of the rubric. So quantities lower. I think this this is very subject specific. This is very, you know, your context. So I think like an actual numerical answer doesn't make a ton of sense, though mm -hmm. you should be cognizant of it. I mm -hmm. think my, I was reflecting on this question in advance. And I think for me, it comes down to a really simple thing. If the quantity of what you are grading or inputting is getting in the way of the quality of the feedback you're attaching to it, you're doing mm -hmm. it wrong. Like you've got to scale back. And I know sometimes you don't have, like schools will say, you have to have X number of things. But I know in the past, that has been a problem for me where I'm trying just to get grades in the grade book. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing valuable about that other than the, the score showing up because I'm over the top in terms of my ability to provide feedback with them. And if mm -hmm. I'm not communicating good feedback with attached to any grade, we we've lost the mark. Like we're going the wrong direction. I guess like sure. my gut instinct is the quantity versus quality way of thinking of it. I think that's, I think that's totally right. I mean, the, for me, yeah. One, like one caveat that I would add, there's a, there's a large portion of my grades that are, that are completion grades. Like I'm not reading, I'm not reading this for accuracy. I think that this isn't, I think that this is an age appropriate thing to hold high school students accountable to what I see as like a valuable writing process. And so the reason that I do this with completion grades, like I have probably twice a week, I'll do note checks just circulating on my clipboard, check plus check, check minus where I'm just going around grading their notes and giving like feedback. I'll put up exemplar notes up on the board describe what makes them strong students know like i'm grading for this and they know what the purpose of these grades are 
but yeah, I think the reason that I bring that up is because I do have, I am intentionally thinking about the efficiency of what each grade demands and concentrating my feedback on the most important targeted things. And that does not happen on, that's not every day. Like some things are like process. You, you got to check plus on your notes. Great job. We're moving on. And other things are slowed down and we spend a lot more class time more intentionally on the weighted mastery type of stuff. 100% agree with that. I think probably that's one way our grade book looks different. Like I have a category for spiral notebooks, which means the yeah. number of those grades goes down, but I'm doing similar things uh, in our classroom process. I think some people listening to this, I'll acknowledge, are like, well, we believe it should only be 100% standards and such. And I'm like, right, yeah, right. I, in a pr- perfect world, I actually agree with you. I also think that we have to adjust our norms to like the norms our students are walking in with and the norms of our buildings. And the and I think sometimes, I guess, I'm not going to try to repeat this too often, is something can be right and ideal, and then mm-hmm. you go into live practice. And I think sometimes it's hard as a teacher. I've experienced this where you go online or you, you, you go to this seminar, or this professional development, and they give this great speech about this ideal, oftentimes from someone who is not in the classroom anymore or has like complete control over like a small school of their own. And then you walk away from it. And you're like, how do I make that happen in my space while also still respecting the norms that I'm working within? Like at the end of the day, you got to see the water. Yeah, you got to see the water you're swimming in. And I think part of both of us, it sounds like there's definitely a level of pragmatism where we're trying to find that balance between the ideal and the the principles that we're trying to live up to. But we also are acknowledging reality, and I feel like that's where we actually are maybe more aligned than I thought going into this conversation. Maybe we'll see on the next question. Let's see. I yeah, I, I guess they, these are the big <laughs> ones. Okay, see, so grade book setup. We've got our numbers, etc. We're, we're pretty close within, and this might be where it changes. Uh, I almost want to skip the next one because I think this is the one. No, I think this is the one. Okay, so Jim, if a student in your class does not turn in an assignment, or let me even say, let me say an assessment, maybe you'll treat them differently on this. Is it a zero, or are you putting in a minimum grade? Thunder strikes down. Like well, that. Marcus, the listening <laughs> audience divides like a parted sea. Yeah, this for is, sure. This is the one. So I would put in a zero. I would say, uh, I my school right now has a policy of uh, minimum grades. So we we put in fifties, and I have definitely seen. I have I have for sure seen the the thing happen that everyone who rails against the minimum grading thing, which says, which is, look, if a high school student knows that they're going to get a 50% or a 60%, that just gives them permission to not do the work. Okay. Yes, that is true. That, that is to me, like that's, I don't really find that to be a compelling argument. And I know that this splits the conversation a little bit around zeros or minimum grades. I, the, the caveat that I would offer here is like, I really don't think that this matters as much as people say it is like people, what I've noticed on like social media and even just talking with other teachers, they are upset around the idea of putting in a 50 when the student did nothing. And I take a step back from that. And I'm like, I like, 
sure that is happening, but I don't think, I don't think that the student is choosing to not do the work because they know that they're going to get a 50. To me, that's just like a natural sort of side benefit of like a side benefit for the teenager to use in their teenage logic brain for not having to do the work. Like if you are a student who is going to not submit an important assignment or not do an assignment, I don't think that they are thinking necessarily about or very intentionally about that particular math calculation. I guess what I'm trying to say is like the policy I think matters a lot less than the culture that you have built around why is this assignment important? Why are we doing it? Why should you make an attempt on it? So I'll stop there. I I am in favor of zeros, but I don't have super strong feelings about it, to be totally honest. I think we're, I would argue we're closer than you might. I expected on this one probably. So I have three th- quick things. Number one, 100% agree that a lot of times the reaction to this is rooted in teachers' experiences and teachers' yeah. emotions, and that should not drive the choice and policy. So I think thank you for calling that out. Uh, I was ready to, and you you beat me to the punch. So nicely done. Uh, <laughs> the second thing is that, like many things that we talk about on here, it's whatever you choose, it's like 60% right and 40% wrong. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it like it's 100 or 100. And very few things are 100% right or 100% wrong. I would argue that extra credit is 100% wrong. I know we disagree on that. That's not part no, of it. No, we don't. Uh, you sold me. Okay. I don't do no, any extra credit that's, anymore. That's one of those things. And I, I, am, I try not to go on my soapbox too often in class when kids ask. But, oh, man, you should see, yeah. the, rest of the, you should see the rest of the class's eyes when another student – they know what I say. But anyhow, uh, going back to this. I think that this one's really tricky because you can see the pros and cons on both sides and people are coming at this for the most part with good intentions. So, and this is where I I think pragmatism has some sort of solution that we've kind of tried to find. And this is a norm thing across our PLCs and our school. So it's not just me going out there and doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think 50 is too much. So what we do is we have two qualifiers. At the, if at the end of the grading period, so every like six weeks, if you haven't turned in any of like you said, like the practice, the lower stakes assessments, we just plug in ones instead of zeros. So basically mm-hmm. like a 25%. So like mm-hmm. it's not 50, but it's also not a zero. And we don't do that for any assessment. So anything that was a major stakes thing. So the goal there is if a kid mm-hmm. did miss a bunch, we could say, look, we need you to go back and take these assessments. We need to go mm-hmm. back and redo these assessments instead of here's 30 things, 40 things you have to do. So it allows us to really focus our priority or someone helping the student who's maybe been out of school for a month for whatever reason to t- focus on the key assessments. That is completely splitting the difference, I acknowledge. And it like I'm straddling the line, but mm-hmm. I found it to be kind of a reasonable way to go in that, that that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I think... I think it's, it sounds very fair. Everything is, we talk about things being context dependent in our classrooms. These conversations are very context dependent for the students too. Like a lot of times I've, I mean, I've had students miss a lot of school for a really reasonable reason, like a, like a death in the family. And 
they don't reach out. They like they will not reach out to say, "Hey, here's why I've missed school." They'll just sort of accept, "Oh, well, I guess I got an F on that, and Mares isn't going to let me turn it in anymore, so I'm not even going to waste my time trying." But if they if they were to reach out and they were to say, "Hey, here's what's going on. Could I redo these assignments?" Of course, I'm going to let them redo it. But that conversation is mostly very absent from students who are, especially who are in, who who are the small segment of students, I think, that most gets affected by this particular discussion. Agree. And the other thing, if you're listening to this, my other like ask would be, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I think Jim is wrong or Marcus is wrong at least acknowledge that whatever your position is on this and pretty much any other big ticket item, there are real downsides to your position. Acknowledge those. And I'm saying on either side of this, I I believe there are real valid downsides that deserve to be named and whatever route you take, you're going to have consequences for that route. Uh, Mm -hmm. So just have some humility on this conversation because that's kind of what's missing in my experience when we have it. Uh, I'm going to kind of like take away my humility a little bit because I think another one of my like at this point in my career, 100% right answer here. I'm going to put to Jim and see what he says. Do you let students revise after feedback for the grades in your assessment with your gradebook you're still setting up in your course policy around grading? I think it depends on the assessment, but like in large part, yes. Like I in fact would also submit that like it's not fair to not let them revise for a higher grade because otherwise what's the point of the feedback? And I think like for me as a writing, like primarily a writing teacher, you and I are very aware and try to establish an overall, like a writing process. Like you start with some notes and you, and then you do some free writing and drafting and like the way that you learn and grow as a writer is through um is is through revising and like taking and implementing feedback and also the i think as a high school kid whose primary currency in school is their grade like it's very important to go through that action of i have i got a 65 and then i did x y and z and then i watched the number in power school move up to an 85 like that's a really concrete and important thing at for for any type of revision or growth like you need to i think you really need to allow for those opportunities but it also should be baked to me it should be baked into like the overall process of like a student should never be surprised if to get a negative to get a bad score on an essay like if that happens and the student it's is surprised by like they feel they felt like they've worked hard and they did their best and then they got a 65 that there's there's a disconnect there not necessarily saying it's like the teacher's fault automatically but there was definitely some kind of communication breakdown that teachers do have a lot of agency over yep we're aligned i'm glad because this is i would have been coming in strong in opposition if not uh well i, I mean I'm, just no go for it Well, just, I mean, another point, like the counterpoint to this, right, is like, I do think that there's, there can be a healthy balance of saying, no, like, I give you a bunch of opportunities to revise. This essay is three weeks old. 
it's not worth your time to go back and and I and like do this assignment or it's not worth it for you to like go back and make up a 10 point practice grade when the real issue is the next essay that we have coming up that's a big performance grade you're not going to be you're not spending your time on that so helping students to prioritize what is most important to revise especially if they've made a bunch of choices that have put them in a situation of being behind I don't think you necessarily need to bend over backwards to like make everything happen and be like revising all the time because you definitely do not want students in like a makeup work spiral um, because that can be just as bad as like, I don't, I don't know what the other thing is, but that can be a bad, a really bad place for a student to be in too. So, but yes, there needs to be really deliberate feedback and there needs to be opportunities for students to say, I need to do this thing better. And if I do this thing better, the number goes up. Like that's an important process, I think. Yeah. And I think that if, if you don't allow them to revise, you're, I, I would assume the implication is like you learn from your feedback and then next time we do this, four mm-hmm. weeks from now, six weeks from now, next year, we might not be doing this skill again this year. Then you will apply that feedback. And like that just doesn't happen. It's like, why not give them a chance to apply that feedback right then and there, especially for big ticket items. And that's what I was mm-hmm. kind of talking about. Some of the, our policies earlier are to funnel that focus into those assessments. And then I have really tight deadlines. Like you got a week or you got 10 days to revise this. If not, we're moving forward. Mm-hmm. But what that also does is it transforms what feedback means because then feedback is a thing. Cause if you're giving students feedback and saying the grade is fixed, you've already weakened what that feedback is actually worth. And it also just changes what grades are in your classroom too. Uh, Mm -hmm. One student's feedback on a, you know, we've talked about, like I do these surveys with students and then conversations about, Hey, I made this choice with this policy. How do you feel? What would you do? And one of the things I ask all the time is about our revision process. And mind you, I don't let them revise up to a hundred percent. I let the, so that there still is some stakes on their big essays on the first attempt because I don't want to take away those stakes, but they can still revise almost up there. So I'm trying to, again, work. I'm Mr. Pragmatic when it comes down to the policies and trying to split the difference a little bit. But one student said last year, I remember like it, it meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. They said that in my class, they were never stressed about their grade and that let them focus on what they were learning. And in mm-hmm. no way did that ever keep them from trying to perform their best. And I'm like, now that's one. That's what you want. There was a lot yeah. of nodding, but the, that's the goal. Like, yeah, that is it about the learning, keep the incentive about performance. And like, I feel like so often it's the opposite talking to students that mm-hmm. thinking about the grade and the policies often draconian that teachers are bringing into the room make it about the grade and not the learning mm-hmm. big billboard in my mind, extra credit policies, but again, not mm-hmm. going down that tangent. Yeah. I, yeah. Like that, that's my golden star. Like what I'm trying to move towards is students to walk out of the room feeling that. And I think revision is at the foundation of that being their lived experience. Let me ask you a quick question related to this before we, before yeah. we start to close here. A lot of this conversation for you and I as humanities teachers is kind of rooted in the revision and the writing process of making your writing better. But what about things like a like a multiple choice, like a reading quiz or in math or sciences, like 
you have like a small multiple choice assessment, you got a 60% on that. How, what do you think about those types of assessments and letting students do them either over again or requises that kind of stuff? So uh, I'm going to just be very blunt here. And I, I feel like you can push back on my bluntness with this. I think multiple choice and content only assessments of knowledge, like did you memorize this, are mm. low forms of assessment. And if you have a good classroom, you are assessing at a higher level that you have higher, stronger assessments that reach a deeper level of learning. And those are where I'd focus your revision on. Like for me in my class, it's like, hey, you can, you know, go correct your assessment, do the reflection. I know you have really good revision processes with your multiple choice. There's a way to do it. But if your biggest assessment is multiple choice in your classroom, respectfully, I don't think that you are assessing in a quality way the way you could regardless of the content area. I think multiple choice is inherently limited and I'm aware of the irony that multiple choice standardized assessments govern our existence in education. And yes, I'm calling that out too. That's me being very blunt that there are better ways to assess student learning and the reasons we don't do that are based on efficiency and teacher needs, not student needs and speech. But like, that's me being blunt answering your question. I mean, I think that's fair. I think I, yeah, I, I would push back on that. I think it's very possible to write. I mean, it's hard. Like I'll say that. And I, and I totally agree that there's a lot of really low rigor, poorly written multiple choice assessments, but I do think in pretty much any content area, it is possible to write a really high quality multiple choice assessment um, where the distractors have like the, the distractor and the logic and the distractor answers and the logic and the wrong answers, there is a clear reason why that answer is wrong that you would have had to like really know your stuff to know why a particular answer is wrong. Um, or particularly but, like add a constructed response where they explain why their answer was the right answer, which would be a higher form of assessing that knowledge rather than me guessing correctly and you assuming that I know it, right? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I'm just saying like, I, I definitely don't think that multiple choice should be the only form of assessment, but I do think it can be, I, I do think it's useful. Like I think, especially with, it can be a really, really, in, in my experience, a really good, like l literal reading comprehension guide, like but these that's a lower stake of learning, right? Like, it's like, that shouldn't be your, yeah. your be all end all assessment, right? No, but they exist, right? Like they're used in the classroom. So if they're going to be used, yeah, do you let? Should you be letting kids requiz or or redo those things? Well, my argument is that whatever use, and I use them at times. I'm not. I you and I we agree there are uses for them, and there are better and worse forms of them. I'm saying if you're designing, going back to our premise here with your hypothetical classroom of what type of assessment you're going to use to get these grades. If the most important assessments in your classroom are multiple choice, that's a problem. In my opinion, I know the many educators that end of that end, you know, end of semester, here's your final Scantron done, got my scores. Like I get the efficiency and sometimes the system pushes that efficiency. And I know again, standardized tests are built on that efficiency. That's based on teacher needs, profit and standardization. That's not based on, is this the highest quality way 
of assessing the learning going on in the classroom. So you're, you're sacrificing what should matter for teacher needs and efficiency sake is again, my case. So I think I, I know, but do you let them requiz or not is my question. So, okay. So my bad, I didn't communicate this. I think if you have your system set up so that multiple choice is a small part of the grade, it doesn't matter as much because there's bigger okay. things to focus the revision on. I would sure. just let them like correct up to a certain number of answers and then move on okay. because I don't care about them as much. But okay. yeah, sorry for you're right. I, I was not trying to dodge. No, them. I think I would. Just, I don't think I you were. I think. Right, now I'm I mean, maybe. Well, maybe multiple choice should be its own uh, pod. I don't know that we've fully opened that can of worms. I don't think anyone's uh, going to listen now if we if we post that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think they might. I think I think it's there's a lot of talk right now generally about about grading and grading yeah. philosophy. I mean, I think it fits into that. So um, I'm going to skip the, the late penalty thing. That was the last question. Yeah, yeah. But I think my guess is we're probably pretty close. And I, I've been largely impressed that despite the time zone difference, I think we're coming at these pretty similarly. Uh, yeah. And I know that, that there's an irony of like, like it seems like people might – know us and assume that we would agree on all these things, but we have very different philosophies on certain uh, pedagogical stuff. And that's why we like doing this. Yeah, for sure. You ready for the last question? Yeah. Okay. So I'm the principal and I come into your room at this new school that you're at and you've set all these policies for your classroom because you had complete control and I have a, a red button. And if you hit that button, every other teacher in that school automatically, all of their policies are hundred percent aligned with yours. So mm-hmm. everything you chose is the same across the school. Do you press that button? No. Like to make every grading policy exactly what? No, definitely not. Um, the reason I think so is because, I mean, it gets into the, to me, it gets in a little bit to this multiple choice thing that we were talking about. Like I think different content areas can and should be assessing knowledge and skills in a way that is appropriate to their discipline. So I think a chemistry teacher does need to identify and assess a base level comprehension of elements of the periodic table, right? Is a multiple choice quiz going to be like the best and most rigorous and most important assessment? No, but I think like a multiple choice quiz along those lines if can be a really good and useful tool. I think math teachers and 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 computer science and even history teachers, right? Like maybe a history teacher is going to want to incentivize more discussion oriented assessments based on debates and historical politics. Like I would want to give teachers latitude to assess I would want to give teachers latitude to assess the content in different methods that, that they think are, that they think are appropriate to their discipline. But one thing that I would say is like, I, for all these decisions that I've made in my classroom, they are based on really thoughtful, intentional experiences and pedagogical conversations that I've had. And I would, if I had a red button to bring that level of intentionality to all these decisions, I definitely would press that because I do think that there's a lot of these 
policy decisions and grading and math calculate like stuff that's just like baked into the incentive structure of the grade book that has huge consequences for students, but often isn't really thought that much about. And it's just kind of like, oh, well, this is how we've done it. That is where I would push back on. Okay. And so I'm going to disagree in the sense that now, if I was this new teacher, I would not press that button. That sounds like a really bad choice in terms of. Yeah, you'd also. Yeah, yeah. But I would, I I might press it if they all knew that if, if no one knew that I would press it. Yeah. Now we're getting to the whole survivor thing. Uh, Yeah. My point, I would, if there was a button that could be pressed in the building, I would believe that button should be pushed. And my argument Mm -hmm. is that I think for every answer I've given today, for the most part, if the rest of the building is 100% aligned on their policy, whether it is the rubric or whether it is the, you know, norms around, you know, penalties, even revision, though that is hard for me. I think that there is immense value in collective efficacy within a building. And Mm -hmm. you are having every teacher have different policies. And let's step away from my diatribe on multiple choice, but everything else we talked about. Mm -hmm. If every class you go into has a different grading scale and different revision policies and different late work, and some have minimums and some don't, and some have accept this and some don't, and you're asking students and families to navigate that minefield through mm-hmm. six, seven, eight different classrooms, you are setting them up to fail and you are gamifying a system that doesn't deserve to be gamified. So I think that that button should be pushed as a building. Yeah. I think that a lot of us as teachers listening to this, those aren't norms and you kind of are on your own and you have to make the best call. And that's what this whole episode's about. But I do think that norming again take out the one thing you said because i get that we disagree a little bit on that and like that's a separate thing because i think my original goal was not to talk about like content decisions and like all of that with mm-hmm. conversation but in terms of the basics like grading scale you know weighted total points all that stuff i think that there's immense value in norming that across a building and if that's not the case i kind of just wonder what's the argument for not doing so i think I I definitely agree. Like collect like the more predictable things can be for students across the board, generally the better. And I'm totally on board with collective efficacy. I guess the argument against it and where where I where I'm coming from with that is I do think that there's like a certain level of different you know different contents are a, like there are different knowledge and different skill sets for each content, and I would want the assessments of that content to make sense according to whatever type of class it is. Like, I do think it can, I do think it can be discipline specific. Like, I don't think everyone is going to be writing essays and papers that would require revision. I mean, I would love that to happen, but that's just not going to be the case. But your scale, which was like assessments versus like performance tasks or like lower stakes, like that's like a generic enough that that should fit across content areas, right? Oh, Yes. Yeah. Yes. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Then I guess I would press the button. I thought you were talking about, I thought the question was like, would you want teachers to give all, to give assessments in the same way that you do? No. And I would say no. Stepping but back in term- to the, the grading norms and all that stuff. In, okay. In terms of all like the, the con, like the high level policy decisions. Yes. I think that it definitely should be the case for all teachers in the building to be aligned on like these big picture 
mastery based versus points based, like late work versus not that some some important school wide policies I do think have to be in place across the board in order for any of these things to work well. Yeah, so that that was kind of surprising. Like that, I think we do see eye to eye on that, and I think part of that is both of us feel, especially at this point in our career, if we say these are the policies, then you are able to make your classroom work within those policies to serve students. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that part of it, people are like, oh, it's because it, we both see the value of having everyone on the same page with those things, but. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're there in a way. I, think, even though it I mean, feels I like think. Discombobulated, I mean, no, I think it. I think it's a good ending. I would say uh, to anyone listening, like, please send us some feedback and thoughts on grading because I think this is a conversation that a lot of people are having. Um, a lot of people can get frustrated with it. I'm actually on like an ad hoc uh, grade committee because we're taking a look at our school policies, and I'm on that committee which our first meeting is this coming Friday that I'm looking forward to, but it's a tough conversation. And another quick thing that I would say, like, especially with the standards-based mastery, and I know that there was this book grading for equity and the minimum, all like the minimum grading policy, these things are very like trendy right now. Like A, trends come and go in education. Like this is a thing that might fade in a couple of years. But I also hate to break it to a lot of people but like the actual quality of high level rigorous research on on high school education in general is is not great like there's a there's a lot of like good stuff out there and there's a lot of good studies that have been done for high school but like large scale wide interventions on a bunch of these decisions like the research just isn't really in um in a lot of cases. And so we are in a lot of these cases, we are flying a little bit blind and we're making some decisions based on our best intentions. But I think humility as usual is the name of the game here because we don't really know what necessarily these best practices are in, in a lot of these cases. Let's just, I mean, you know, title episode, (laughs) humility, grading humility is the name of the game. Uh, We're not really sure. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think but that that's so important because and then and I, we all do this. Like we have strong convictions within that humility, but like the water should be humility that we're swimming in because you're right. Like we don't know for sure. Even the things we know have significant downsides as we discussed, even if we think mm-hmm. it's mostly right. And I think that just, I hope, I know a lot of people like once you write that book, you got to push that policy, right? Or once you mm-hmm. said this is the way, now you got to sell it. And that's just how the world works and, you know, the political aspects of Mm -hmm. education. But have humility, acknowledge that whatever position you hold, except for extra credit, uh, Mm -hmm. has immense real downsides. People disagree with you with for valid, well-intentioned reasons. And let's Mm -hmm. have the conversation from there. And I think that's Mm -hmm. how I would end in concurrence with you. And I enjoyed this conversation, too. It was good to connect. Yeah. I did too, man. This was this was good to connect, and it's good to see you. Um, we're gonna be, we've got our stretch, our spring stretch is coming along, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and if we if we miss any podcast, just put in a minimum grade for us and just move right along. And we'll yeah, exactly. We'll take the fifty for sure. There we go. Take care. <laughs> All right, you too, Marcus. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. 
The show is written, hosted, and produced by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mares. Thanks to Alberto Lugo, a former student of mine, for writing and producing original intro music. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Alberto is an independent DJ and music producer based in New York City. You can find his work on Instagram at DJ Synchro and explore his portfolio at djsynchro.weebly.com. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available on Spotify. You can stream all his music on Spotify under the name Uncivilized, on Instagram at banduncivilized, and online at uncivilizedtom.com. You can even sign up for remote guitar lessons with Tom, just like I do. Thanks to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. You can leave us an audio message at podinbox.com slash brokencopier. We might be able to respond and feature it in the next episode. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.